Okay, there we go. Got it. All right. Uh, good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, I already introduced myself. My name is Drew, uh, and I am glad that you guys are here with us. It's a good night, a beautiful night, actually, to be able to get together and worship God together and then also to open up and hear from His Word. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, before we start, I want to show you a picture <clears throat> of a guy I think you will all know. Boom. Okay. This guy right here. Anybody here not know who this is, just out of curiosity? Okay, there's a, there's a handful. Amy DePanya, okay. Uh, Emily, could you please tell Amy who that is real quick? Okay. Okay, this is, uh, this is, this is, for those of you who don't know, this is Babe Ruth, okay? Uh, considered by many people to be the greatest baseball player of all time. And I know, like, if you're just looking at this picture, he might not look like a world-class athlete. Um, I think he looks more like the guy who, like, sits and eats hot dogs and nachos and drunkenly yells at the players from the stands all the time. But believe it or not, actually, there's, there's a decent chance he was, he was still drunk playing half of his games. I don't know. Uh, but uh, he was considered and is considered today, like I said, the greatest of all time. And, and that's a, a lot because of what he was able to accomplish. Baseball, uh, probably as much as any other sport, is a stats sport. People love stats. They love tracking stats. And you can track them deep back in history. And so when you look at his stats, they are incredible. And he basically dominated the game during the 20s and the 30s, kind of. And, and, and so he was huge, even at the time. And, and looking back now, everyone kind of recognizes him as great. But the truth is, it's not just the stats that make Babe Ruth seem great. It's the stories. Uh, it's, it's the legends. It's, it's the folklore around Babe Ruth. He has, these kind of, he has this kind of almost mythic aura around him and the things that he was able to do and accomplish. There are all these famous little tales about him. Perhaps the most famous of all took place in the 1932 World Series. Yankees versus Cubs, and Ruth's Yankees are playing in Chicago at uh, Wrigley there, and, and they are up 2-0 in the series. They, they took the first two games at home. Now they're in Chicago playing, and it is in the top of the fifth, uh, and Ruth is up to bat. <clears throat> Score is tied, 4-4. Four to four. And in the middle of all this, because he's such a big deal, uh, like people, everybody knows him, and all the opposing players and, and, and fans are always very against him, right? And so even while he's out there playing, like the, the Cubs players on the bench in the dugout are jawing at him and like yelling things at him, and the fans are yelling things at him, and, and Ruth is actually just yelling things back at everybody else while he's playing, right? And he gets up there to bat, and the count is two and two, right? So he's got two strikes, one strike left to go. And there in the middle of the at-bat, he stops. He's a lefty, I believe, if I remember right. Stops. And with like two fingers, kind of holds up two fingers, appearing to point out to center field. And, and then he pulls his hand back down, puts him on the bat, and on the very next pitch, just smokes this ball and sends it directly where his hands were pointed, all the way deep into the stands in center field for a go-ahead home run. And this moment just like dumbfounded people when it happened. Like all the papers were talking about this. This was this incredible. He just called that. He just 
pointed where he was going to send the ball and sent it there. And, of course, when the game was over, everyone gathers around him and they want to know, was that, was that on purpose? Were you calling that? Did you, did you predict that you were going to hit that? And, of course, Ruth is like, oh, yeah, totally, I did that. Uh, now, the, the pitcher for the Cubs at the time, I got his name, Charlie something. Uh, the pitcher, where is he? Somewhere out there. There it is, Charlie Root. Uh, Charlie Root swears that is not what Ruth was doing. Charlie Root swears that actually what he was doing was actually kind of holding up two fingers towards the fans who were all mocking him about ready to strike out. He's basically holding up his hand saying, that's only two. It's only two strikes. There's only one left. Uh, I, I still got one left, so let's see what happens, which I still think is pretty cool if that's what he did, right? But he swears, no, I was pointing out there. And so this became like huge. It just like captured the imaginations of people even during that day and has, has gone out from there. The day that Babe called his shot, that he predicted what he was going to do and then backed it up, made it happen. Last week, Randy walked us through most of the 10 plagues that Yahweh brought down on the land of Egypt as an act of judgment for them and deliverance for his people to set them free out of Egypt. And we show, he showed through these acts, through these plagues, his great power over Egypt, his great power over the gods of Egypt. The plagues would kind of slowly move from an annoyance like frogs and gnats and flies to things far more devastating to the vitality of Egypt and to the economy of Egypt. Uh, hail on their crops and livestock dying and all kinds of disasters like this. And Pharaoh continually after each plague asked for reprieve. Please make it stop. Do we, I'll, I'll do anything to make it stop. But then every time the plague stops, he switches and turns around and says, never mind, I'm not letting you go. And this happens time and time again. It seems that there will be no end, but... At the very beginning, all the way back when God first called Moses and sent him to Egypt, he, like the babe, called his shot. And he had predicted from the beginning that it was going to go this way, that Pharaoh's not going to listen to you at the beginning. He's going to harden his heart. And as a matter of fact, he says, I'm going to help him harden his heart in the process. And so it's not going to work, but he says, but I will eventually rain down judgment on him. After 10, he will let them go. And so he makes this prediction, and, and it, it's at this moment that he speaks, to, uh, he speaks to Moses to kind of explain and remind him of that. I, I don't know if I've actually got this marked in my Bible. I'll have to go there real quick. Alex, uh, Exodus, Alexodus, Alexodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be there mostly in 12 tonight, but if you want to go there, here's what God says to Moses. Yahweh said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he won't just let you go. He will drive you out of there. Now, this might seem crazy when God says this to Moses because so far it has not gone well. And as a matter of fact, um, Egypt-Israel relations are at an all-time low in this moment. After the ninth plague, Pharaoh is so angry, he says to Moses, Leave my presence, and if I see you here again, the day you see my face, you will die. Do not show up again. And Moses says, fine, and he begins to walk out. But before he does, he says, uh, one more thing. You need to know that there is one more plague yet to come, and this one will be the worst. At midnight, uh, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. 
that Yahweh will travel the land and he will strike down every firstborn son, including yours, Pharaoh. And by the time this is over, Pharaoh says, your officials and you have been arguing and fighting and resisting to keep us here. By the time this is done, your officials will come to me on their knees and they will beg us to leave. And with that, Moses walks out. Now, most of, the, fair, uh, most of the, the plagues actually unfold really quickly in the text. Basically, you have the prediction of the plague, and then Moses walks out, and he stretches out his arm, and the plague takes place, and then Pharaoh asks for it to end. And then it just kind of goes right like that real quick. This one stretches out over a period because here, um, God wants to give a lot of instructions to his people. There's a lot of things that he wants them to know about this because this moment is going to be a significant moment in their history, one that he does not want them to forget or let go of. And so he's not only speaking to Pharaoh, Moses is also going and speaking to the Israelite leaders. Here's what he says in Exodus 12, the first couple of verses. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Catch this for just a second. What God is about to do will be so monumental that it is going to change their reckoning of time. That the way they account for their years and their calendar years changes. Everything else, God says, starts here now. This is the month that you will recognize at the beginning because this is the new beginning for Israel. This will be uh, the beginning of everything that you are starts now. So begin right now to reckon this month as the first month of your year. And then he says in verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. And you should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male, and you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. So each household, he says, is to set apart a specific animal, a sheep or a goat, for their family. And if your family's too small and you don't have enough money, then you go in with your neighbors and you get an animal, a goat or a sheep, and you are to set this one apart. And it is important that this animal be unblemished. That is, that there be no flaws in it. No broken legs, no diseases, no spots, pure and perfect. This matters a lot. And then he says in the, in the verses that following, verse 6, You are to keep it, that is the animal, the sheep. You are to keep the lamb until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. So on a specific day, the 14th day of this month, uh, is when they will all, at the same time, at twilight, they will slaughter this sheep, slaughter this lamb to prepare them for the ritual meal. Now that's not odd, okay? A ritual meal is not odd, and the slaughtering of animals for it is not odd. They weren't butchers. You just raised your own animals, and you slaughtered them yourselves, and then that's what you ate that night. That's all fine. What is peculiar, though, is what they do with the blood, that you don't just leave it there, that you're to collect it. Actually, in another place, it says you collect it in a basin, and then you're to take that basin, and with a hyssop branch, you're to, to dip the hyssop branch in that, and then you're going to take that blood and paint it over the door frames of your house. Whatever house you're eating this meal in, you paint those door frames with 
blood. And he's going to explain why in a moment. But first he's going to give them more instructions on the meal. He'll say in the following verses, which I'll just sum up for you, that they are to eat this meal in a particular way, not relaxed and reclined, not comfortable. And he says you, you should be eating it, uh, our versions say like ready for travel. Literally it means like with your, with your uh, cloaks girded up, so like the long robes that you'd have kind of wrapped up around your waist so that you can be ready to move. He says you should be eating it with your staff in one hand, with your walking hand in, in a hand. He says you should be eating it with sandals on your feet because tonight is the night that you will be ready to go and everything is going to happen so fast that you need to be ready in a moment's notice. On that night, I am going to rescue you, God says. Now move down with me to verse 12. Then he says this, this is God speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. Now, last week Randy told you that each of the plagues that take place, they're not arbitrary. Uh, they were specific attacks against the false gods of Egypt who were said to have control over these certain things like frogs or, or the livestock or whatever it is. And, and in each of those, God was showing that he was over all of those things. And one of the reasons we believe that is because we can see kind of through Egyptian history that there were gods over each of these elements. But the other reason is this verse right here. God says specifically one of the major reasons he's doing all of this is to show that he is superior to all the gods of Egypt. Um, and now we get a more full explanation of what that blood on the doorpost is about in verse 13. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So for many of the plagues, or for a number of the plagues, God actually differentiated between the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites stayed, and the rest of the land of Egypt. Uh, he would allow the plagues to come onto Egypt, uh, but not onto Goshen. Some seemed to be on both, but there were some where he deliberately distinguished between the two of them. Um, and that is true here. He's going to distinguish between these two people groups. But, and this is really important, it is not specifically a matter of ethnicity that is going to distinguish these two groups. It is not specifically their Egyptians and your Israelites, therefore this will happen to them and this will not happen to you. No, no, God is actually gonna to come to every house on that night, in every part of the land, including Goshen, including where the Israelites are at. What separates those who experience the plague from those who don't is the blood. The truth of the matter is, in every home, something will die on that night whether it will be the firstborn or whether it will be a sacrificial lamb, an animal who will take the place of them. But it is that blood on the doorpost that differentiates the two of them. When God sees the blood, he says, I will pass over your house, which is where we get that term from Passover. And they are going to mark this day as a significant day for them from this time forward. Look at verse 14. This day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. And whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. 
You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may only do that. So it will actually be the first this, this day um, that they're going to celebrate will be called Passover. And that will be the very first of a seven-day festival, which will be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during that following week, they will eat nothing with yeast in it. All of the yeast will be removed from their homes on the day of the Passover. And then from there on out, and this is to be a lasting ordinance for the people that they will follow from here on out and only eat unleavened bread during this time. Uh, the significance of that is seen just a few verses later when the night arrives. Look at verse 29. Let's jump all the way down there for, us, for a minute. It says, Now at midnight... Yahweh struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship Yahweh as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave. And also bless me, he says. And as Yahweh promised, it happened. That on this night, the firstborn males of Egypt all die. And the text says, I don't know if you caught it there, the text says that there is a loud wailing throughout the land of Egypt. The word, the Hebrew word that's used there is literally like a loud cry or a loud outcry. And I think that that word is actually probably significant because it is the exact same word that is used in Exodus 3, 7, which should be on the screen. Listen to what God says there. This is when God first meets with Moses and he's calling him to go to Egypt and set his people free. He says this, Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. That's the word. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. We talked about this, that God is a God who sees and hears and knows. He knows our suffering. He knows what we're going through. And he heard the cries of his people. And what we see take place on Passover is that God takes the outcry of the Israelites who are suffering under the oppression of Egypt, and then he turns it on its head. And the outcry of his people on the night of Passover becomes the outcry of their, of their oppressors becomes the outcry of the entire land of Egypt. Hold on to that thought for just a bit. Now we see, though, that Pharaoh is not just willing to let them go. He's practically shoving the Israelites out the door. Uh, uh, him, along with all the rest of the Egyptian people, look at verse 33. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. It all happens so fast. The, the, the Egyptians are so desperate to get rid of them that they just start shoving them out the door. 
and, and so quickly that the, the bread that they would set out the night before to let it rise, it doesn't even have time to do that. And so they just have to grab it all, grab the dough, put it in these bowls and fling it over their shoulder and go. And so this is to be the moment of remembrance. This is why they eat unleavened bread. It's to remember the time when God took these helpless people who for hundreds of years could do nothing to save themselves and in one night fixed it all. That he moved so fast and so quickly and powerfully, they didn't even have time for bread to rise. And so every year from there on out, when they eat unleavened bread and the children ask their parents, why? Why do we do this? The goal is that they would say, because God saved us so fast, so radically, that we didn't even have time when that took place. That's why we eat bread like this. And it becomes this um, huge moment in their history to look back on and remember. This is an incredible display of power, and it is an amazing act of rescue on God's part to come and save his people. But there are some, a number of people, who struggle with the, the way that God chose to do it. The idea that all these firstborn sons, that all the firstborn males of Egypt, that they would all die in a given night, seems to many people harsh. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe as we read through this tonight, or maybe as you've sat in your table groups talking about it, maybe just in your own time when you've come across this story, that same thought has crossed your mind. Is this harsh? Is this okay? Is this, is this all right that God does this? And if that's something that you're wondering and wrestling with, I understand that. I, I, I get that. I want to share with you just a few thoughts that I think are important for us to remember. A couple nights, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, and I shared just three things to note. Tonight, I just want to share four things, four things that I think are important to remember when we read passages like this. Number one is this, God is good and always does what is right. And if that, if that point sounds familiar, it's because it's the same one we started with two weeks ago. I just think it's so significant that we pause to remind ourselves of this truth. It can be so easy for me to read the scriptures as though I am the end-all, be-all judge, as though I know everything. And if I cannot see a good reason for something to happen, that must mean that there is not a good reason for it to happen. And so, therefore, um, I, I begin to kind of put my own judgment on this. And it's important for me to remember I don't know everything. I don't see everything, and there are things that God knows, and there are things that God sees that I do not know and I do not see. It is important for me to remember what the Bible says, that there is no darkness in God. There is no sin in God. There is no injustice in God. He always does what is just and what is right. Do you know why it's wrong to take a human life? You know why it's wrong to kill someone, to take their life from them. The reason that it's wrong for me to take someone's life is because that life does not belong to me. It's not mine. I did not create that. I did not give that to them. That's actually why it's also wrong for me to take my own life, because I did not create my own life. I did not give me my own life. My life is something that was created by God. It is His, and actually, Every breath that I breathe is an undeserved gift. Every day that I live is something that he has given me that I am not owed. It's not something that I've 
earned. I haven't worked to get that. It is a free gift that he has given to me, and therefore he has the right, if he wants, to take that life from me. Job actually talks about this in the book of Job. He's the main character there. And in one day, Job loses everything that he has. He loses his family. He loses his money. He loses his home. He loses his health. He loses everything. And in the middle of that, in Job 1.9, he is mourning. He's sad. Okay, So he's not indifferent to this. He's not stoic. He is sad in the moment, but he says this truth. Yahweh gives, and so Yahweh can take away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Job says, I don't, I don't like this. I hate this, but I can say that I don't I can't argue because everything I had was given to me by him anyway. It's, it's his in the first place, and therefore I believe that he has the right to do what he wants with it. Here's the second thing that you need to know and remember, that this is not a random temper tantrum on Yahweh's part, that this is not him blowing off steam. This is a measured act of justice. You remember that word cry, that the people of God cried out in Exodus 3, and God says, I have heard that cry. Why were they crying out? If you've been here from the beginning, you know. If you've been reading along with us, you know they cried out because of the great oppression that they were facing at the hands of the Egyptians because at one point in their history, Egypt decided to take an entire nation and turn them all into slaves and treat them like property and work them to the bone, and work them to death, literally to the point that even when they seemed to be doing okay and at least having more kids, Egypt enacted a forced population control policy in which every baby boy born to an Israelite, not every firstborn boy, every boy, period, was to be taken by any Egyptian who found them and drowned in the Nile. This is the policy. This is what Egypt was doing to the Israelites. This is the way they were treating them. And a crime like this is a crime, if there is any justice in the world at all, that deserves punishment. But there is no human court system with enough power to punish Pharaoh and Egypt at this time. There is no human being with enough power or authority to bring down justice on Egypt. They're the most powerful country in the world. And so God himself says, I will do it. And he steps in and brings justice because of the suffering that was inflicted on these people, on his people. Here's the third thing for you to know. There are worse things than physical death. The Bible is very clear that those who choose to live their lives apart from God and his purposes will one day get what they want. That if they wish to live separated from God, if they want nothing to do with God, one day they will get what they want. When they die in this life, they will be at that point separated from God forever. We call this eternal separation from God, we, we have a name for it, we call it hell. And it is the worst possible thing that could happen to any human soul because the human soul was made for God, finds its life in God, finds its joy in God, finds its meaning and purpose in God, and to be severed from that for eternity is the worst thing that could happen to anyone. But I believe, and let me just pause here to say for a second, that what I'm about to say to you is not something that is universally agreed upon. Um, that there are, there are some scholars who don't necessarily uh, believe this. There are a number of scholars who do. Uh, and, and, and the reason that there's not like a conclusive thing is the Bible does not speak to this directly. But I believe that there is solid evidence in the Scriptures 
that everyone who dies, every person who ever dies in infancy, dies as a baby, that they wake up in the arms of God, that they go and spend eternity with God in heaven. And therefore, the 70 years that they lost, that they could have had on earth, pales in comparison to the billions of years that they spend in joyous eternity with God. As hard as this may be, that it is nothing compared to what they get for forever. And so those who die, which by the way, we don't actually know that when it says the firstborn males die, we don't actually know that that means all children, right? Like I am a firstborn male, which very well means that I could have been, like I might have died on that night at midnight. And if so, I would have deserved it because I took part in the oppressive slavery of this people group and the, and the brutality that was given to them. I, I took part in that, and I worshiped idols my whole life and all those things. I, I believe that. Uh, but, but for those who were not full-grown, who were uh, uh, children, uh, I think the truth of the matter is if an Egyptian child dies, the alternative is that they don't die, and then they grow up to be just like their parents, just like their dads, idolatrous, racist, oppressive people who will separate themselves from God for eternity. But those who are taken at a young age, something different happens to them. As one writer says, this is kind of what he believes, and I think that this is true. I agree with him. Uh, those Egyptian parents died, and they will be punished for their sins. Those children of the Egyptians died, and they will rest with God forevermore. Here's the fourth thing that I think is important to remember, that it is well possible that some Egyptians actually escaped judgment on this night. Again, it's important to remember that this plague came to every house, including the Israelites' house. But God passed over those Israelite houses, not necessarily because they were Israelites uh, and not necessarily because they weren't Egyptians. He passed over that house because of the blood that was on the door. We know, actually, from the seventh plague, if you remember, the seventh plague is the plague of hail. And Moses actually went and warned the Egyptians, warned the officials of Pharaoh that this plague is coming. And we are told that there were some of the people there listening who feared the word of Yahweh, that is Egyptians, feared the word of Yahweh. And so when they heard, they took heed and they went and responded and they pulled all their livestock in from the fields and they pulled all their servants in because they received a warning and they listened to it. And so nothing happened to their livestock. They were not killed. And so I, I believe that there's, I think there's good reason to believe that this could happen here too. That the Egyptians who heard and believed and chose to trust and, and follow these same, um, these same practices with the blood on the doorframe, that they could have been spared. Actually, we're told uh, in Exodus 12, verses 37, read these couple verses here. This is very interesting. It says, the Israelites traveled. This is right after they get released from Egypt, okay? Right after Pharaoh says, you can go. It says, the Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot, besides their families. And a mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. So we are told that when Israel leaves Egypt, it is not just Israelites leaving Egypt that they get up and they go, but there's actually a group of others that choose to go with them. There are some who see what is done and they go, this is the one true God and I'm going to be a part of this. And I'm going to be with this people. So I don't think it's crazy to assume that there are Egyptians in that crowd, Egyptians who have become convinced by what they have seen and who followed the instructions of Moses on that night. Okay, I, 
Uh, I wanted to take just a little bit of time to walk through those things, spend a little bit of extra time in this first half, and we'll be a little bit shorter in the second half. But before we get to that second half, I want to read two more verses from you for, the, for you from the beginning of Exodus chapter 13. It says this, Yahweh spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animals, it is mine. So after this night takes place, God instills this practice here where he says, you need to know it's not just the Egyptian firstborn, every firstborn belongs to me. And from here on out, Israel is to take part in a practice where every firstborn male is to be consecrated or redeemed or bought back through a lamb. So if I have a firstborn son, I bring a lamb to the temple as like basically a trade in to redeem my son to me uh, on those grounds. And this is true of every firstborn of the flock. They were to be redeemed by a substitute that would be offered so that they could remember this thing forevermore. But it does bring up a question. Why does God make such a big deal about the firstborn? Why does God specifically go after Egyptians' firstborn? Why does God specifically tell the Israelites to redeem their firstborn and to consecrate them, that they are dedicated to Him? What is the big deal with that? That's what we'll talk about after the break, but we'll take just a few minutes to stretch your legs, use the restroom, whatever you got to do, then we'll get back to it. Okay, how many of... How many of you here in the crowd uh, are the baby of your family, the youngest, the youngest kid in your family? Okay, there you go. So cute. You're all so cute. Um, how many of you in the crowds tonight are a middle child? There you go. All right. <laughs> Just try. Somebody give me attention. Someone give me attention, please. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How many of you are the oldest in your family? Look at that. Oldest just like me. Okay, listen. I just, wanted, I just wanted all of you oldest to raise your hands because all of us oldest children know what the entire ancient world knew, which is that all kids are special, but not as special as the oldest. Okay? But that's just kind of, yeah, hearing it from the middle kids. Uh, that this is just true, all right? Listen, I, I don't mean to paint with too broad of a brushstroke, uh, but broadly speaking, we're just better. That's kind of all that, like, that's the main kind of thing, right? I'm, <laughs> right, I'm kidding. I am obviously, I am joking, I am kidding. But let me tell you something. People in the ancient Near East are not kidding when they say that. Like, the people... The people in the day when this was written, that's not a joke. That's, that's not even like a, ha-ha, this is kind of, it's like they would just be like, yeah, that's just common knowledge. That's just something that we all know and understand. So the oldest child is the most important and the sky is blue. What else do you want to tell me, right? Like, that's just how they thought of everything. This was the way that things were done back then and the way that things were seen. There was a special status that came with being the firstborn, especially, though, the firstborn son, the firstborn male. 
Uh, they were considered to be the strength of their father. They were the ones who were primarily responsible for carrying on the family name and the family honor and uh, even taking care of like the, the family assets. And so uh, when a father would be kind of writing out a will to leave his property to his children, um, he would divide it up amongst his children, but the oldest son got a double portion, got twice as much as everybody else because... Like, we need to ensure, like, I want all my sons to do well, but I need to ensure that the oldest one does well. He carries on my name and my honor more than anyone else, and so I need to set him up to succeed in life. This is the way they thought of things. It would be the oldest who got that. It would be the oldest prince who would inherit the throne whenever the king died and went away. Now, it is important. I'll just kind of pause and say this for a second. It's important to note when we talk about the scriptures, the difference between prescriptive texts or ideas and descriptive texts or ideas, right? So the Bible will talk about this idea of the firstborn being like the most important in different families. It will talk about the idea of like the son being more important than the daughter, okay? But uh, the Bible, when it describes those things, is merely doing that. It is describing the culture that was happening at that time. It is not prescribing and saying that's the way it should be. Um, there are definitely, there are lots of places in the Bible that are prescriptive where we receive commands from God that say this is how you should live. This is how life should work. And when we see those, we follow those. And then there are a number of other places, specifically in narrative texts like Exodus or things like that, where it is merely descriptive and it's simply describing what has happened. Uh, so sometimes I think people can get really uh, frustrated at what seems to be like almost a sexism or something in the scriptures or even this kind of weird favor of the oldest above others. The Bible is not necessarily saying that's how it is. It's just saying this is what this was what was happening. In that culture, the firstborn son mattered the most. And so it's important to kind of grab a hold of that idea. But one of the important things, in fact, I, I think I can prove to you that the Bible is not prescribing this to be true. Because one of the fascinating things you will see when you read through the scriptures is how often the Bible actually goes against that idea. How often God himself actually works against those things. Check out God's instruction to Moses all the way back in Exodus 4. Exodus 4, verse 22 to 23. says this, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. So look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. So here we see the reason why God goes after the firstborn of Egypt, because Egypt had gone after the firstborn of God. Israel, he says, is my firstborn. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that Israel is not the firstborn. They are not the firstborn figuratively, and they are not the firstborn literally. Figuratively, they were not the most important people group, which is often the way that this word, firstborn, it was so understood that the firstborn was most important that sometimes you'll see the word firstborn used figuratively just to describe someone who is the most important or the head over all those things. But it's not even true figuratively of Israel. They are not the most important people group. They are nobodies when Yahweh says this. 
They are the least important people group. Uh, they, are, they have no influence. They have no power. If there's anybody who's the most important people group in the world at that time, it's Egypt themselves. It's not Israel, and yet God says they are my firstborn, but they are not the ones with the status of firstborns. They're slaves. But Israel, not only is she is not figuratively the firstborn, Israel is not literally the firstborn. Just a little bit of background for you. All the way back in Genesis 12, and we've touched a little bit on this. In Genesis 12, God calls this man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want to use you to reach the world. I'm going to use you to bless the world. I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. And that nation of people, which will eventually become Israel, I'm going to use that nation to bless the whole world. And so he's going to do this through this line that comes through Abraham. And then Abraham has two sons. The oldest is a boy by the name of Ishmael, and then the youngest is a, name, a boy by the name of Isaac. And the one that God chooses to use, the one that God lets the line come through, is not the firstborn, but the secondborn, the traditionally least important of them. Isaac will have two sons, Esau and Jacob, and they're twins, but Esau is born first, and so he is the firstborn. He's the one with the firstborn rights. He's the one with the firstborn privileges. He's the one who carries on the family name and the honor. He is not the one that God chooses, though. The one through whom God will bring this great nation, the one that God is going to use to eventually bless the whole world is the second born. It is Jacob. And Jacob, his name will later be changed to Israel. And it is his descendants named after him that are in Egypt that time. They are literally the descendants of Israel, the second born. That's who they are when God says these things. They are not the firstborn figuratively or literally, but they are Yahweh's firstborn. And that's all that matters. That God has chosen to step in and say, I don't care what the world says about you. I don't care what the world would do in this situation. I don't care the paths that the world would normally take. I choose you as my own firstborn. I choose you to be the most important. And this is a pattern that will play out throughout the scriptures. God consistently chooses for his team the people that you would never expect him to choose. The people that no one else would put on their team, God chooses them. Jacob, the one who is called Israel, he ends up having 12 sons. And those 12 sons will each have their own descendants, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 sons, and then one of his tribes, will become the tribe of the kings. The tribe through which the kings of Israel will come, and the tribe through which the ultimate king Jesus will come. That tribe, that person was, you may know, Judah. Judah is not the firstborn son. Judah is not the secondborn son or the thirdborn. Judah is fourth, and God chooses Judah. Judah, his, his mom is Leah. This is another thing to know. Jacob had two wives, again, descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible's not saying this is a good thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible seems to indicate that this caused a lot of ruin and havoc in this family. But he had two wives, these sisters, Rachel and Leah. Rachel is the pretty one. Rachel is the one that everybody adores, that everybody thinks is awesome. She's the popular girl. Leah is the unwanted one. Jacob got swindled, basically, into marrying her when all he really wanted was Rachel. She is neglected and unwanted. Guess which one God chooses to use to bring the kings into existence? Guess which one God chooses to use to bring ultimately his Messiah into existence? The unwanted, the neglected, Leah. 
is the one through whom he goes. And then when the tribe of Judah trickles all the way down many generations and you come time to appoint a king and God wants to choose a king, a good and right king to replace the bad king Saul for his people, he sends Samuel to, uh, uh, he sends a prophet named Samuel to a man named Jesse. And Jesse has eight different sons. And when Jesse shows up, he sees these sons, uh, or when Samuel shows up, he sees Jesse's sons and he goes, oh, I've been sent to the right house. These are some strong men. These are some powerful men. These are some natural born leaders. And one by one, he goes to the firstborn and God says, no, not that one. And he goes to the second and God says, no. And the third and the fourth and the fifth. And then finally, they get down to the, the, the very last one, the eighth born, the baby. And it's David. And David is the one who becomes the king and the one who will rule over God's people and be the quintessential ruler of his people. It is always like this in the Bible. That God always goes against the ways that everyone else would choose. And he takes these people who have no business being in charge, no business being important, no business being used, and chooses to do that to them. The Passover is a great symbol of this fact, actually. So I, I mentioned before, I, I, for a year, I lived in this country uh, over in the Mediterranean called Cyprus. Cyprus, I'm going to try to be brief here, but Cyprus is split into two halves because of a civil war that took place there in the 70s. There's the northern half and the southern half. And for many years, there still is to this day a UN line that runs right down the middle of the country. And for many years, no one could cross that UN line. No one was allowed to pass. Um, but probably five, six, seven years before I came to Cyprus, they opened up this, this border so that Cypriots, people from the north, could cross down to the south, and people from the south could cross over to the north. But they didn't let everybody do that. Uh, the south side, which was kind of the, the more prosperous side, they would not let any Turkish people, and there's a large Turkish population in Cyprus, um, they would not let any Turkish people cross down to the south side because Turkey came and helped the north side during the Civil War. And so I was there, and, and just a few years before I got there, they actually opened it up where if you had an American passport, you could cross. You could go across the line. And so here I am in Cyprus, and, and one of the things we would do sometimes, uh, the north side had like nothing. It was, it was a little bit more poor and didn't have much to do it. The south side had all the things that we remembered from back home, uh, McDonald's and Starbucks and Pizza Hut and all those things. So if we wanted like a taste of home, we would travel down to the border and show our passports and go across to the south side. Um, but here's the thing. If I were to travel down to that border with one of my Turkish friends, uh, Efejan, one of my closest friends there, and I was to go there, and we were both to try and cross the border. I could go. He could not. They wouldn't let him. Why? Because they look at me and determine that I'm a better person than he is? Because uh, I took a, a history test on Cyprus, and I knew more things about Cyprus than he did, and because of my knowledge, they decided that, because I was better looking than him. I was better looking than him, but that's not why, okay? <laughs> No, like they did not, it had nothing to do with that. The reason I could go, the reason I was allowed and he was not, was because of the symbol that was on my passport. Because it said United States of America. And I did nothing to earn that. There was nothing I did that gave me that right or that privilege or that freedom. I was just born. And it was given to me by someone else. It was given to me by my parents. Same thing with the Passover. God, when he comes on that night, he does not spare the houses of the people who are the best. 
He does not spare you for being a better law keeper. He does not spare you for being more moral, for being nicer, for being sweeter, for being better looking, for being richer. The only thing that separates those who were spared from those who were not is the blood on the doorpost. The only thing that sets them apart is nothing inherent to themselves. It has nothing to do with them. It is this choosing of God to, to bestow a gift that allows them to be this. That's all that matters. And the Passover festival was a way for the people to remember this over and over again. The way that God saved us, not because of us, but because of the blood on our door frames. Look at Exodus 13. Verses 7 through 10. Unleavened bread is to be eaten for those seven days. So it's, it's talking about the festival that takes place right after the Passover. And nothing leavened may be found among you, and no yeast may be found among you in all your territory. On that day, explain to your son, this is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead, so that Yahweh's instruction may be in your mouth. For Yahweh brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. He says, the, the reason you do this, you will explain to your people, this is because of what Yahweh did to me or did for me. And they were to always remember this. This was a way for the people of Israel to always remember who they were, which was contingent on whose they were. The reason we are the firstborn, the reason that we were saved, the reason that we were rescued is because we belong to Yahweh and He freely offered this method for us to be saved, to be rescued. And this yearly festival celebrating that freedom was the way to remember over and over again what God had done for them, not because of them, but because of Him and because of what He chose to give to them, which is why it is so fitting that God chose this very festival some 1,500 years later to rescue His people all over again. It's the night of the Passover, around the year A.D. 30. It's in Jerusalem, and it's a cool night, somewhat like this, and Jesus is sitting around a table with his disciples, and they are celebrating the Passover meal, the very Passover meal that was instituted in the book of Exodus all those years ago. And in the middle of this meal, Jesus takes some of the unleavened bread that they're eating together, and he breaks it, and he begins to pass it out, and he says to them, this is my body that is given for you, take and eat. And then he takes a cup and he passes it around and he says, this is the blood of, catch this, the new covenant, the blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. On that night, Jesus says, we're doing something new, that I am going to make a new covenant tonight. I am going to make a new kind of people. And what does it take? for the disciples and everybody else and you and I to gain this status as the people of God, as the brand new people, the sons and daughters of the king, the firstborn. This is actually what we're called in Hebrews 12, the assembly of the firstborn. That's you and I. No matter what your birth order is, we, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a believer in him, you are in a part of the assembly of the firstborn, the most important, the privileged, the treasured. And what does it take to get to be a part of that? Just like in the Passover, it's got nothing to do with a person's goodness or a person's worthiness. 
or a person's knowledge of the Bible or their church attendance or their spirituality. The only marker that counts somebody as in is the blood of the Lamb. It's the only thing that separates anything, anyone from anyone because the very next day after Jesus makes this statement, he will go and he will die as a spotless, pure substitute so that you don't have to. Just like the Passover lamb all those years ago that died so that the people in the house did not have to, Jesus goes and on the very weekend that all the Passover lambs are slaughtered, the true Passover lamb goes to the cross and he is slaughtered so that I don't have to be so that we don't have to face this. This is actually what Peter says in his letter to his people. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says this, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. That's what marks them as different. That's what marks anybody as in on this new people of God's. There is an unending search inside of people to find something upon which to build an identity, something that gives them a status, something that justifies my existence, that gives me some level of significance in my eyes or in others. But in virtually every instance, when people run after something that makes them important, like the firstborn was important back then. In every instance when people run after that, the kind of status that they are trying to find is a status um, that I have to earn, the kind of status that I have to create. And then once I've earned or created that status, that identity, I have to fight hard to maintain it, whether that identity be through my talent or through my things and my stuff or my beauty or the attention that I get from others or the approval that I get from them or even just from being a really good person. And what I want to tell you tonight is that I believe everyone is looking for something like this. Everyone is looking for something that justifies your existence. Everyone is looking for something that tells you and hopefully tells everyone else around you that you matter, that there is some reason for you to be around, that there is something that makes you important. And what I want you to know is when you chase it through something you make yourself, when you chase that status through your own accomplishments or something you create in and of yourself, not only is that wrong because you are trying to build an identity on your own apart from the God who made you, it is also exhausting. And it is not sustainable. But here, in Jesus, in this new covenant, is one status given to you freely, regardless of your past, regardless of your reputation, what it used to be or what your reputation is, whatever kind of identity you may carry from others or from yourself. And I don't know what that identity is, what people thought or said about you back home, or what you constantly find yourself saying about yourself all the time, whatever it may be, whether that identity is screw-up, or you are the black sheep of the family, or you are the bad kid, or the selfish one, or the one who can't get their acts together, or the overlooked one, if that is you, I've got really good news for you. And that is that based on the pattern of Scripture, you fit exactly in line with the kind of person that God usually chooses on His team. That God has a tendency at grabbing the kind of people who got no business being with him and saying, I want you. I don't care if you deserve this. Of course you don't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. I don't care. I want you. 
I want you to be mine. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. It doesn't matter if everyone else says you're unwanted. You are, you are wanted by me. You are wanted by the king no matter what you are. And I've got good news for you because if you're the good kid, if you're the one who always got it right, if you're the one that all the parents said, why can't you be more like so-and-so, if you're the one that was always kind of looked up to as the talented one or the one who always had their act together, the good news for you is that you're welcome in on this too. But you're going to have to drop that identity at the door when you come. Because there is no identity that is created by you that is enough to make you part of God's people. There is no amount. You will never earn the status of God's by being a person who goes to church every week. You never earn the identity of belonging to Jesus and being a Christian by being good or by being more loving than others or by being less judgmental. None of that matters. None of that counts for anything. Those are things that we ought to seek. We ought to try to be those things, but that is not any sort of status that earns you anything with God and therefore nothing that is worth having in and of itself. The only status that comes to us, the only identity marker that counts before God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And there are two ways to get this whole thing wrong. There are two ways when it comes to the identity that is given to us, the status that is conferred on us as the firstborn sons and daughters of God. Two ways that people will go the wrong direction with this. The first is this, to assume that your actions will give you an identity. Just what we, we just mentioned. We ought to do good. We ought to be the kinds of people who are doing good and who go to church and who love others. And we ought to be the kinds of people who know the word, but none of that makes me a son or daughter of God. That does not make me a Christian because I grew up in church and know a lot of things about the Bible. Does not make me a Christian. God and I are not good because I am a good person who tends to be pretty religious. It is only the free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ that gives me this new status. And it's important that I remember this. I get it wrong when I think my actions give me my identity. But the other way to get this wrong is to assume that my actions are irrelevant. That I can do whatever I want. That if I've already been given this status as belonging to Jesus, if he's already saved me, if he's already given me grace, then it really does not matter how I live my life. This runs in direct opposition to the way the Bible talks about our identity time and time again. The New Testament always talks about this identity that we have been given in Christ, not as an excuse to remain in sin, but as the very reason that I ought to put it to death. In fact, that verse that we read just a minute ago, you have been redeemed from your old way of life, not by perishable things like gold and silver, but by the very precious blood of Jesus. The context of that, the verse right before that, is Peter saying to them, live in reverence and holiness. You ought to live in reverence and holiness. And here's why. Because Jesus paid for you with his own blood. And he did not redeem me from pornography so that I can run back to it whenever I need a quick fix. And he did not spill his blood so that I could continue to gossip and backbite against other people. And he did not redeem me and make me his so I could sleep with my girlfriend and call it good because Jesus' blood covers me. No, no, he died to mark me as his own so I could live out the freedom and the identity that he gave me in Christ. And to, to abuse that and live in whatever way I want is to profane the blood. It's not what he did for us. No, I am, I am not saved by anything I do. It is only by the blood of Jesus. And yet because the blood of Jesus has saved me, I want to live in line with him. 
I want to live in a way that pleases and shows them. I want to live out my identity as the firstborn, as the used to be slave, now chosen in God to be his royal priesthood and his royal people. Uh, his royal people. I want to be that because of what he has done in me. My prayer for you tonight is that if you fall in the camp that makes light of your sin because of what God has done for you in Jesus, that you would be convicted of that. And that what Jesus has spilled for you will be enough motivation for you to live for him. And that if you fall in the other camp of always trying to find an identity for yourself, always trying to prove to yourself or other people that there's an importance in you by your goodness or your smartness or your talent or whatever it is, that you would let go of that. That you would drop the exhausting pursuit of trying to make a name for yourself and let him give you that name. Let him give you the identity that only he can give you. That is what we are called to. That is what we've been made for, and that is what he has set us free for. Let me pray. We'll be done. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this practice of taking those who, who got no business being special or important and making us yours. And uh, my prayer, Lord, is that we would take seriously the beauty of that, of it that my friends here tonight who don't know that, who've, who've sought their whole life to make a name or identity through their own actions or even tried to get to you through their goodness, that you would show them that. And Lord, that you would open their eyes to see that this comes by grace through faith in Jesus. And for my friends who, like me sometimes, take sin lightly because of what you've done for us, I pray that you would convict them and convict me and help me live out the freedom that you purchased for me Help them live out that freedom by your Holy Spirit. I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.